Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And before we jump in today, I have a really exciting announcement, which is that one of my colleagues here at Hopkins, Dr. Shravani Durbakala, who you may recognize from a podcast we did on the opioid epidemic, will be launching a really exciting new contribution to the foam med world. It's called Pain Rounds, and it's a free neuromodulation course for pain fellow. So it's designed for current CA3s who are going into pain to sign up. You can go right now to painrounds.org, painrounds, all one word, .org. You can sign up for free. I think you have to take a pre-test and a post-test and fill out a couple surveys, but it doesn't cost you anything. And you get this incredible series of half an hour videos. They're not lectures. They get demonstrations in the cadaver lab. There's interviews with experts from around the country. There are case scenarios, tips and tricks, really interesting stuff. If you have any interest in neuromodulation, if you're going to be a pain fellow, this is something to really check out. Go to painrounds.org. Shravani has done an amazing job with this. You have to sign up now, but it will be released all in one big chunk in July of 2019. So sign up now, and then when you become a fellow, July 2019, you'll have access to all that stuff. All right, let's get on to the main event. I am thrilled to have back with me today Dr. Stephen Freiberg. Stephen was one of our fantastic residents here. He served as a chief resident here, and then he went to Duke where he was a cardiac anesthesia fellow and the chief cardiac anesthesia fellow and is now an attending anesthesiologist at the U.S. Anesthesia Partners of Florida group in, uh, at the Florida Hospital in Orlando. Um, and it's really a blast, Stephen, to have you back, even if it's just via Skype. Uh, so welcome back to the show. So excited to be back, Jed. At least remotely, I was really had such a great time doing the podcast while I was in training. And I said to myself, once I have a little bit more time, which I'm not convinced that I've fully achieved, but <laughs> podcast with you and for Akrak was something I wanted to continue. So I'm psyched to be doing it. And absolutely thrilled to have you. And so I know that we've done uh, some great podcasts that uh, you've put together in the past and you've wanted for a while now to really think about um, a podcast on coming off of bypass, really one of those central things for uh, anesthesiologists doing cardiac cases. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about coming off bypass. So let's start right away with just kind of the basics. Why don't you tell us what you 
think of in terms of the basics of preparing to come off bypass or even what bypass is and what it's important for people to know about it? So I knew I wanted to do a podcast or perhaps even a series of podcasts about cardiac anesthesia. Obviously, I love cardiac anesthesia, and there's so much to talk about. But to start off, I try to think back to what I wish I understood better during my rotations during residency, but also something really fundamental to the practice of cardiac anesthesia. And obviously, that's the use of cardiopulmonary bypass. And more specifically, the process of weaning from or off of cardiopulmonary bypass. I don't know if you can go so far as to say that weaning from bypass is the most important part of a cardiac case, but I would argue it's in many ways the crux of a cardiac case. It's certainly a very busy point in the case, and it's the time when the surgeon asks for the attending to be called in if they aren't already present. And it's such a busy time, I found it often a difficult moment for teaching to occur. And as a trainee, I would often be told, do this, now don't do this, or don't do that. But it was rare to never that anyone actually explained what was going on. So today, I'm, I hope to peel back some of the mystery of weaning from cardiopulmonary bypass. Great. So what do you, when you think about kind of the basics of it, what do you think people need to know? Sure. So what I hope to cover today is exactly what you said, the basics of understanding how cardiopulmonary bypass works, at least enough to understand the weaning process. Number two, I want to describe some of the logistical and practical preparations for coming off of bypass. Number three, to describe how to prepare the soup, as I say, or to sound fancy and academic, the physiologic milieu to optimize separation from bypass. And then finally, to really delve into, but hopefully in simple terms, what is going on when the patient is weaned from bypass and what we as anesthesia providers are looking for and how we contribute to the process. Now, I should say just a little bit of a a disclaimer. This talk is going to be a little bit more focused on the physiological and practical aspects from weaning from bypass. I will cite some relevant literature, but this won't necessarily be focused on the cutting-edge evidence in regard to the topic, but more to provide a really, hopefully, good understanding of what's actually going on. Yeah, and I think that'll be really helpful for folks out there who are doing this or training in this, especially because you now, for... Uh, a year and a half have been doing uh, either nothing but or very much uh, dedicated to doing this on the ground every day. So I think your your experiences here are going to be really useful. I certainly hope so. So let's jump into how cardiopulmonary bypass actually works. And as we dive into this, I just have to put a plug out there for all the perfusionists. The work they do is really fascinating, and obviously we couldn't do any of these life-saving procedures without you. And I highly recommend, if the opportunity arises, either in the form of a formal rotation or even just informally, spend some time with your perfusionists. They're an absolute wealth of knowledge, and I've never met a single one who wasn't more than happy to talk about what or why or how they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. In fact, we in the cardiac SICU here, as you know, will routinely uh, have the perfusionist or ask the perfusionist to take our students and residents through the circuit, whether it's ECMO or bypass itself. Uh, and I think that's one of the really popular um, ways to spend an afternoon. The residents learn a ton. Yeah, it's absolutely terrific. So in the most basic sense, cardiopulmonary bypass, the components are a venous cannula, and that is typically placed in the right atrium, though there are variations on this. The venous cannula returns venous blood to the venous reservoir by gravity and also by vacuum suction. From there, the blood is oxygenated and carbon dioxide is removed, 
typically by a membrane oxygenator that effectively serves as artificial lungs. From there's a heat exchanger that controls the temperature of the blood, filters to remove air bubbles, and finally, non-pulsatile return of blood is to the body via the aortic cannula, which is distal to the aortic cross clamp if a cross clamp is being used, thereby delivering oxygenated blood to the rest of the body. So as the name implies, cardiopulmonary bypass quite literally is doing all the work of the heart and the lungs. And obviously, this is a dramatic oversimplification. There's additional circuit pumps or other components employed as needed to suction blood from the surgical field, deliver cardioplegia, decompress the heart via various vents, and remove fluid by hemoconcentration. And also, modern bypass machines have systems that continuously monitor line and circuit pressure, temperature, blood gases, hemoglobin, and electrolytes, as well as various safety features such as air fluid level detection and additional filters in the arterial line. But to understand the process of weaning, all one really needs to understand is just what we described, how the blood goes into the machine and how it comes out and finally back to the body. Great. So that's kind of how the circuit itself works. Um, and as you say, the, the nitty gritty details, you probably are best learning from sitting down with a perfusionist, uh, but the basics are going to be really helpful. All right. So what's next? So to take our understanding just a little bit further of cardiopulmonary bypass, it's helpful to understand the physiology of how the pump mimics the actions of the heart. Now, as mentioned, the pump also performs the action of the lungs, but for simplicity's sake, we'll kind of take that out of the equation and just focus on how it does the work of the heart. So what a perfusionist does with the bypass machine is they're manipulating and controlling the determinants of mean arterial pressure and cardiac output. So what a perfusionist will do is target a cardiac index, usually at about 2.2 to 2.4 liters per minute per millimeter squared, by adjusting their pump flow. Quite literally, they'll say, I'm flowing at three liters per minute, four liters per minute, whatever it is. And the flow is analogous to the body's cardiac output. And they measure the adequacy of tissue oxygenation by monitoring mixed venous oxygen saturation. Additionally, they'll target a mean arterial pressure, often around 65 millimeters of mercury or so, though that can certainly be higher or lower for different reasons. And the way mean arterial pressure can be increased in the body by changes in cardiac output, they can also change the mean arterial pressure with adjustment of their pump flow. If their pump flows are appropriate, however, and the mean arterial pressure is either too high or too low, it typically suggests that the issue is with systemic vascular resistance, and this can be adjusted either with administration of a vasoconstrictor or vasodilator. And are there standard um, vasoconstrictors and vasodilators, Stephen, or does it just depend on institution to institution? I think it's very institution dependent. Where I've worked, the typical vasoconstrictor of choice is phenylephrine, either administered directly by the perfusionist or sometimes run in conjunction with an infusion by the anesthesiologist. Um, and sometimes you'll run into situations where you have such significant vasoplegia that there may be one or more vasoconstrictors necessary. But I would suspect the first line is phenylephrine from where I've seen it uh, three different institutions now. 
And a vasodilator is typically either an increase in the volatile anesthetic administered typically by the perfusion circuit or a direct-acting arterial vasodilator such as nicardipine or clavidipine. Great. And so those uh, may be administered, as you said, by the perfusionist, maybe by the anesthesiologist, maybe some of each. And then um, if the phenylephrine, uh, assuming that's your first go-to, is not working, it may suggest significant vasoplegia, as you said. And maybe just do you want to say a word about why we see potentially significant vasoplegia during cardiac surgery? Sure. We already have the contributors to vasoplegia and what we have with any anesthesia case uh, narcotics, IV anesthetics, volatile anesthetics all contribute to vasoplegia, but also the interaction with the bypass components in the tubing produces a pretty significant cytokine response and a lot of pro-inflammatory mediators that really can worsen and sometimes drastically cause that vasoplegia. Yeah. All right. Great. So, all right, you're using your, as you said, we're controlling uh, cardiac index or flow with the pump itself monitoring central venous sats, keeping the map at whatever level we decide, hopefully around 65, and then adjusting SVR if the flow is where it needs to be, adjusting SVR via the mechanisms you just mentioned. All right, so that's kind of what's going on. What's What else are we doing? Correct. And then really the last thing when we think about determinants of cardiac output or mean arterial pressure is preload. And the preload is the amount of volume in the pump. If this falls, it can be improved by suctioning blood back from the surgical field or, if necessary, adding crystalloid or colloid or blood product to the pump. And you'll often hear a perfusionist say to the surgeon either, hey, do you guys have a lot of blood in the chest? Or, hey, my reservoir is getting really low, suggesting that they're having trouble keeping up with their required flow with the amount of volume they have in their circuit. Right. And so in an in a completely closed circuit, it would just come in, it would come out, go back in, come out, go back in. You'd never have to have it, to add anything. But of course, it isn't a completely closed circuit. As you said, they may have blood pooling in the chest, collecting on pads, some ending up on the floor, et cetera. And so at some points, you may need to add either blood or other fluid. Correct. And so the reason why, and those are essentially the variables that the perfusionists are controlling from a hemodynamic standpoint. And the reason why it's important to understand these is because understanding what's going on in the pump can give a lot of information when it's time to translate the work of the heart back to the patient itself, themselves. Great. All right. So we understand what's going on with the pump. Um, and as you've nicely set up, at some point, of course, this patient needs to be able to do it themselves without the pump. And so how do we prepare for that? So let's just talk about, as you said, the logistical preparations. You're on bypass. You turned off your ventilator and your pulse oximeter and you turned off all your monitor alarms, which, at least for me, was very unnerving the first few times I did it to have no sounds and no pulse ox. But you do eventually get used to it. And it's you use the time while you're on bypass to prepare for coming off of bypass. And I remember this with the six P's. The first P is for pharmacology. This is the time to make sure any vasoactive or inotropic medications, either in the form of a bolus or infusion, however you expect you might need to administer them, are drawn up, primed, ready to go. When you're actively coming off bypass is not the time you want to be having to spike drips or make new infusions or dilutions, things of that nature. The second P is for pacemaker. 
always make sure you have one and that it has a functioning and adequate battery. If you want a surefire way to annoy your surgeon, tell him you're waiting on a new battery for your pacer when he's ready to come off bypass. Learn from me. They don't appreciate it. <laughs> I bet. And just for folks out there who may not have done cardiac anesthesia yet, uh, you are not referring to an indwelling pacemaker that a cardiologist would place. You're referring to the uh, battery-powered, handheld pacemaker that's going to be attached to the leads, that the ex- the uh, temporary leads that are attached by the surgeon to the patient's endocardium, uh, to the patient's uh, um, outside of the patient's heart. Correct. For most bypass cases or um, sternotomy cases, a surgeon will place epicardial leads that will be connected to an external pacemaker, as you described. Yes, epicardium was what I was going for. Yeah, great. You got it. I, I knew where you were going. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, so you've got these leads that are attached to by the surgeon uh, to the epicardial uh, portion of the heart. They're coming out, and the, uh, you now have this handheld pacemaker. That's the thing you want to make sure you have. And that the battery works. And that the battery works. Great. <laughs> so the third P, I say, stands for propofol or Presidex. Now, the choice of intravenous anesthetic may obviously vary from institution to institution, but if the sole anesthetic for the case has been an inhaled vapor via the bypass circuit, now is the time to set up for whatever form of anesthesia you plan to use for the remainder of the case, and especially the type of anesthesia that you're going to use in order to transport to the ICU, assuming that you're not planning to extubate the patient on the table, which does happen at places like Johns Hopkins, but commonly um, the patients are transported to an ICU still intubated. Great. Now, you you said propofol or Presidex. I, I think we all know propofol uh, can serve as an anesthetic by itself. Uh, Presidex, if you, if you did Presidex, would that be instead of propofol or in addition to it, or how does that play in? And I guess we should uh, say for our non-United States listeners that Presidex is dexmedetomidine. Correct. Um, I can't say definitively I've seen one used I don't think I've seen them used together at any of the places I've trained I don't think there's necessarily a reason you couldn't as we'll often do various TBAs if your dosing is appropriate and you're trying to maximize a certain anesthetic benefit Um, but typically where I have trained it's one or the other Um, at Hopkins and at Duke it was primarily propofol, though there were some movements toward Presidex. I think now what I've heard from some of my colleagues at Hopkins, there's actually a much more of a push toward Presidex. And where I currently am at, uh, we use Presidex exclusively. And so yeah, tell me a little more about that. When you say – so what do you – you come off bypass and the only thing the patient is on is Presidex? In combination with a volatile anesthetic. With a volatile, gotcha. Okay. That makes should, sense. Okay. And that I believe is how – that's how it was done uh, at Duke and I believe – uh, that's how they're doing it still at Hopkins as well with some a, a intravenous anesthetic combined with volatile anesthetic. Yep, sounds great. And have your, your intravenous anesthetic ready to go in order to transport to the ICU. Absolutely. Great. So we've got the farm, the pacemaker, the propofol or Presidex. What's the fourth P? Fourth P is protamine. So I always say to prepare it, but to keep it well away from other medications so that it's not administered accidentally. Common things would be to keep it in the top drawer of the anesthesia cart or to, ha- to hang it behind the anesthesia cart. Whatever it is, keep it well away from being accidentally administered. And protamine being the reversal agent for heparin. Correct. Great. All right. So the reason you don't want to give it early is because if you reverse the heparin while the patient's still on the pump, the whole thing's going to clot off. 
that's not a situation you want to be in. Great. All right. So you want it ready, but you don't want it to. You, the last thing you want is an accidental uh, dosing of protamine. So have it ready and have it somewhere safe. Correct. Okay. The fifth P is for platelets. If it's your institution's practice to routinely check coagulation factors and or you suspect coagulopathy may be an issue post-bypass, it's often a good time to send these sort of labs during rewarming and if you have that laboratory information back or once again sort of empirically suspect that the thrombocytopenia or other coagulopathy might really be an issue to think about ordering the necessary blood products, having them ready to go after separation from bypass. Great. And do you routinely send a thromboelastogram of some kind uh, to evaluate that or just send platelet numbers? So both, typically what I've done and what I like to do, especially for longer bypass runs or more complicated cases where I suspect there to be a significant coagulopathy, either from the patient's pre-existing pathology or, as we can certainly talk about at length for another podcast, uh, the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit causes pretty significant derangements in the patient's uh, natural coagulation. So if I suspect that to be a problem, I will want more uh, specific data with which to target my therapy. So yep. indeed, my preference is to send both a platelet count, excuse me, a platelet count, a fibrinogen level, and a thromboelastogram of some sort, whether a TAG or a Rotem. I've used both at various places. They right. all essentially give the same information. Perfect. All right. And, and then last P is P, as in urine, as in your own urine, because now's the time to go do it. So ask a friend, a colleague, you don't want to have to pee during bi- during separation from bypass. Great. So, uh, right. Go, make sure your your needs are met. Excellent. Sure. All right. So we've got the six P's uh, in terms of preparing um, the logistical um, and practical pieces of getting ready to come off bypass. Anything else in there in terms of logistics that you want to keep in mind, or does that cover it all? I think that pretty much covers it. Obviously, you want to have a system organized, ready to go if you're. Sometimes in the the rush of an early case or an emerging case, you know, getting on to bypass can leave the room in a bit of a tizzy. Now is the time to get yourself organized, composed, and ready to do things in a systematic fashion. Great. All right. And then the second part of the preparation that you had said uh, was important is kind of the physiologic milieu or, or, as you had said, the kind of soup preparation to make sure that, I guess, more the patient is ready to come off. So how do you do that? Exactly. So as I mentioned, I use the soup analogy to optimize the physiological conditions to separate the patient from cardiopulmonary bypass. I've seen several acronyms out there in the literature to remember these concepts. Personally, I haven't found any of them to be very easy to remember because either one letter stands for multiple things or it's a a funny spelling of the word in order to create the acronym. So I may have just given you six Ps. Sometimes it, it is just easier to remember stuff. Um, So I don't have a very useful acronym for this. Alternatively, perhaps even better, is to utilize a checklist. Many institutions are moving toward a formalized checklist before separating from bypass, and I think that's a totally reasonable strategy to employ. Great. So what's on your checklist? So on my checklist is, firstly, temperature. So we say soup should be warm, right, to torture an analogy. (laughs) Um, So usually a nasopharyngeal temperature of 37 degrees Celsius or a bladder temperature of 35.5 degrees Celsius is acceptable. And so just obviously uh, hypothermia, we're assuming that these cases are being done under some level of hypothermia, more extreme if there's 
um, actually a cardio uh, pulmonary arrest or um, circulatory arrest, uh, maybe less extreme if there's not, but still being done at some level colder than a normal surgery that's not a cardiac surgery with bypass. And so you need to warm up and you're saying your goal is to have a bladder temperature of at least 35.5 or a nasopharyngeal temperature of at least 37. Correct. Okay. Next component of the soup would be hemoglobin. Now, the decision to transfuse is controversial, and a paper comes out every couple of years or so saying whether the restrictive or liberal strategy is better for the patient. But suffice it to say, a hemoglobin target above 7 or 8 is, is pretty common. Okay. The next thing is would be your acid-base status. We target a normal pH, obviously, and then correcting any electrolyte abnormalities. Any major abnormality would want to be addressed, but the common ones we think about are potassium, often shooting for a potassium level of 3.5 to 4. I believe some institutions do routinely check magnesium levels. Nowhere that I have trained do they do it routinely, but it could be a reasonable thing to do. And then what is monitored closely is ionized calcium. We'll talk about this again a little bit a bit later on. The administration of calcium is very highly controversial. But for now, let's just say that often patients become hypocalcemic while they're on pump, and that may require correction. Okay. So that's important to keep in mind. And then there's that, you know, kind of dangerous uh, combination of acidosis and uh, hypokalemia, because once you fix that acidosis, then, of course, it's going to worsen the hypokalemia, and so you want to keep that in mind as well. Correct. Other component is glucose management. Very well established that hyperglycemia is bad for these patients, so glucose control is very important. So sometimes I don't know. I think people have different definitions of what tight or strict glycemic control is, but I think it's very common that goals for these patients is to be certainly less than 180, I think is a, a pretty reasonable strategy at, at minimum, I guess you could call it. Yep, absolutely. Um, and so you're going to accomplish that if needed with an insulin drip? Correct. Okay. And then another component being, and we touched on this a little bit, would be the coagulation status of the patient. Typically, factors and platelets are not replaced until after protamine is administered, but if you have significant laboratory derangements in your coagulation studies and or you expect a lot of bleeding, it's wise to have those products in the room or certainly immediately available. Great. All right. And so... Interestingly, uh, I think this is done uh, differently in some places I've seen, whether you have a cooler of product sitting there with everything in it uh, or whether you have to call for it when you need it. But either way, know, obviously know your own institution's protocol. Correct. So I think the uh, soup is ready, and it's, it, it's time to serve the soup. All right. How do we serve it? All right. So let's go through the steps of coming off bypass. So what actually happens? So the surgeon has revascularized the patient or replaced the valve or whatever it might be. He's essentially done or nearing completion of the patient's index procedure. The surgeon will remove the cross clamp, assuming that a cross clamp was used, not all procedures do, and will typically request to resume ventilation in order to de-air the heart. The reason this is important is that air may accumulate in the aortic root, in the left ventricle, and the left atrium during surgery particularly if the heart chambers have been opened, and these may embolize to the systemic circulation after removal of the cross clamp. And so when the lungs are reinflated and mechanical ventilation is reestablished, pulmonary venous blood is displaced in the left atrium along with any air bubbles trapped in the pulmonary veins. 
An embolization to the coronary arteries can cause myocardial ischemia, arrhythmia, and ventricular dysfunction, while embolization to the cerebral circulation can cause neurologic dysfunction. And the goal of de-airing is to reduce this cerebral or systemic air embolization as much as possible. So it's common that we'll place the patient in the Trendelenburg position while we de-air in order to reduce the amount of air potentially entering the cerebral circulation. And just a note here, I didn't know what an open-heart procedure meant until embarrassingly late in my training. I think I thought of it in sort of the layman's terms of, oh, I'm having open-heart surgery. So there were times when the attending anesthesiologist would say to me, oh, well, did, did the surgeon open the heart? And I said, of course they open the heart. We're, do, we're doing open-heart surgery. What a surgeon means for open-heart surgery or a cardiac anesthesia provider or someone intimately involved with cardiac surgery actually means opening the chambers of the heart or entering the chambers of the heart, for example, with a valve replacement or a septomyectomy or certain aortic procedures. So to a surgeon, a cabbage or a coronary artery bypass grafting is not open heart surgery, so to speak. So for, so for these procedures that are not open heart, de-airing is a little bit less of a concern, but it's certainly always good practice. It's never going to be a bad thing to de-air. And we, with the benefit of having TEE, we can look for air specifically on the echo, and that gives us a lot of information. Great. All right. So you want to, the surgeon's removing the cross clamp. You're going to start the ventilator, which, of course, has been off during bypass since the bypass circuit is doing the work of the lungs, and de-air the heart. Correct. So typically, once the lungs are re- reinflated for de-airing, mechanical ventilation will typically contu- continue. My practice is to recruit and re-expand the lungs with two to three sustained breaths, and I look for visual confirmation of bilateral lung expansion and resol- resolution of atelectasis in the surgical field. So I always look into the field to see that the lungs are coming up, but I'm also cautious to not make the lungs bulge out of the chest. Because in patients who had an internal mammary artery grafts, there's risk of avulsing that graft. Another way, I imagine, I've not done this one yet, but imagine one that would make a, a surgeon very unhappy. Definitely. So how, and how do you accomplish that? How do you do it kind of in a controlled way? Do you have, do you watch the pressure? Do you do a certain volume? So I'll typically administer um, a pressure of 20 to 30 centimeters of water and look again into the surgical field just to see pretty much how much the lungs are coming up. And often a very good surgeon will communicate with you and say, oh, your lungs aren't coming up yet. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. They look good. Or sometimes, you know, they'll say, oh, that's too much. That's too much. Right. So communication always a great thing in that regard. Absolutely. Um, and then this is also the time to address any pulmonary issues, especially if it's a patient who has underlying pulmonary disease. If they so you suspect they need aggressive mainline suctioning or you feel the need to administer bronchodilators, certainly you want to address anything that could sort of hinder your oxygenation before coming off bypass. When we come off bypass and we start ventilation, 100% oxygen is typically used. We're going to get into a bit of mine and certainly one of Jed's favorite pet peeves about hyperoxia. And there's definitely a lot of literature and controversy surrounding how hyperoxia may play into reperfusion injury. But what I typically do to separate from bypass and what I think I've seen a lot of practitioners do is start on 100%. So you sort of have that margin of safety if there are any reasons to have systemic arterial hypoxemia. And then as soon as things have stabilized, I will try and titrate that down pretty quickly. Yeah. And even I 
will not argue that there is never a time to use 100% action. I just wouldn't park someone at 100% action unnecessarily. And, you know, I will say that it's, uh, and we know this, there's good good research out there that people uh, routinely use higher levels of oxygen than needed uh, in the ICU and in the operating room. But I would say the, probably the worst offenders are cardiac uh, surgeries where people throughout an entire cardiac case will routinely have PO2s in the four or 500 range um, for, for the whole case, which, uh, you know, again, I get it when you're coming off bypass, you're starting to ventilate, you're kind of adjusting everything, but for the entirety of the case, probably not necessary. Correct. And once we resume mechanical ventilation, it's often a reasonable time to redose paralytic if necessary, guided by your twitch monitor, and resume either inhaled volatile anesthetic, either alone or in combination with intravenous anesthetics, as we mentioned. Absolutely. All right. So you want to remember, obviously, as well, at some point, uh, as you mentioned before, obviously, during bypass, the uh, anesthetic is being administered by the perfusionist. When you are no longer on bypass, there is no longer that happening. And so you have to make sure you still have anesthesia getting in somehow. Correct. And actually, learned recently, not all perfusionists administer volatile anesthetic. A friend of mine is... Somewhere in, he's still actually practicing in Maryland, said their perfusions do not administer volatile anesthetic, so they run higher concentrations of intravenous anesthetic. I thought that was interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So depending on your local practice. Make sure there is anesthesia on for the patient one way or another. I remember, and this was a while back, but when I was a resident, uh, it was pretty routine to give some Versed around the time that you were coming off bypass, just in case in that transition there was a you know, a lessening of the amount of anesthesia on board. Do you do that? Do you think that's pretty standard or not? So I think that the issue is, as we know, awareness under anesthesia is highest. One of the high worst offenders is cardiac anesthesia. And certainly during rewarming is one of the times where we're especially concerned about that. When a patient's hypothermic to some degree or another, their MAC is decreased. So I think it's pretty common to sort of increase your anesthetic delivery in one way or another, whether it's to administer Versed, to increase your Presidex or propofol concentrations. Um, you know, you'll get some very angry people for administering Versed. You'll get some others who say, how dare you not administer Versed. But I think the concept remains the same, that you want to increase the amount of anesthesia that you may have been delivering than you were before. And I typically, for younger patients, may administer a milligram or two, um, whereas older patients, and by older I'm meaning because we certainly are seeing octogenarians and beyond into cardiac surgery these days, but you know, once you start reaching 70, 80, I tend to cut back that versed dose um, to one or even nothing. Okay, sounds good. And that I think varies a lot from institution to institution, so uh, certainly don't try to rock the boat too much if you're starting in a new place. Sounds right to me. All right, what's next? So after the heart, excuse me, after the cross clamp comes off, the heart is now reperfused. You have blood circulating through the coronary arteries once again, and it's time to get the heart beating, addressing any rate and rhythm problems. Often a perfusionist will administer magnesium and or lidocaine to limit ventricular arrhythmias, and at this point in time, defibrillation is often required and is not such a scary situation, so to speak, because you have the safety and the support and that you're still technically on cardiopulmonary bypass, and sometimes you just have to shock the heart back into a normal rhythm. And it's critical to establish a perfusing heart rhythm before weaning. The preference is obviously normal sinus rhythm, but this is one of the reasons we employ temporary epicardial pacing, either if you can't get into sinus rhythm or often if the sinus rhythm is either meets criteria for bradycardia, or sometimes it's just not fast enough. 
often a rate of 80 to 90 is targeted to optimize diastolic filling time and also coronary perfusion and cardiac index. But once again, that can vary depending on the surgeon, institution, and the patient's underlying pathology. And Stephen, I know we we always, uh, in the cardiac ICU, we would think about these patients, much like infants, are very heart rate dependent uh, right after surgery, right? Because their their heart has just been operated on. There's a lot of inflammation. It's very stiff. And so there isn't a lot their bodies can do with increasing contractility to increase their cardiac output. So they really rely on a heart rate, which is why you don't want it too slow. Correct. Certainly, the body can often not do a lot to increase contractility without exogenous inotropic support. Yeah. Great. Okay. So you're going to pace if need be. Uh, if you get into a sinus rhythm at, you know, 80 or 90 beats by yourself, you may not need to pace. You'll just have it set as a backup. All right. Sure. And then what are you going to do? So, and just a little further note on pacing, when your AV conduction is normal, your atrial pacing is going to be the preferred method. It's the kind of closest to physiologic ejection. And really, if you have to go from there, AV pacing is preferred, followed lastly by ventricular pacing, because with ventricular pacing alone, you really lose that atrial kick. And so it's having some sort of AV synchrony that's optimal for ventricular preload. Absolutely. Great. All right. So you got your heart rate uh, with or without pacemaker help where you want it in a rhythm you like. And then what's next? So now we're in the reperfusion state. The experience with Accumulated ischemic arrest is demonstrated that most hearts will benefit from a period of rest after releasing the aortic cross clamp to essentially wash out these harmful metabolites. And an average of 15 to 20 minutes of supportive bypass for each hour of cross clamping often describes a good recovery. And one would argue that this is easily accomplished with proper timing and rewarming by the surgeon. However, this is not always easy to do, and I, in my experience, often haven't found surgeons who are willing to wait that long once they've completed their repair, but it is something to try and keep in mind. So as much as I sort of know the, patient, the surgeon's pattern, I will try to allow as much rest time as possible before I <clears throat> excuse me, administer calcium if I think that's needed or additional inotropic or vasoactive medications because I'm really trying to provide that reperfusion washout period and rest of the heart the best that I can, though it certainly is infrequent that it's as long as might be recommended by the studies. Okay, that's interesting. So ideally, we'd wait 15 to 20 minutes for every hour of bypass, and you could easily, depending on the case, have a couple hours at least, if not you know, more. So you're talking about a significant amount of time to have to wait. If you follow that, as you said, maybe a challenge. But in your mind, you're going to wait as long as you can and avoid anything that will add stress to the heart during that time, like calcium, which would increase contractility, like some epinephrine or another inotrope, which would increase contractility. Correct. That being said, once I've read sort of the rest period that I can or maximize that rest period afterward is typically when I will start inotropic support if needed. Now, some of the predictors of needing inotropic support post-bypass include a prolonged cross-clamp time, a reoperation, if it's combined cabbage mitral valve repair replacement, if the patient preoperatively has moderate to severe mitral regurgitation or preoperative EF less than 35%. A couple other Risk factors that have been cited from smaller studies include advanced age, female gender, or elevated filling pressures. But in the most basic sense, 
the way I think about it is the sicker the heart is, the more likely, excuse me, the sicker the heart is preoperatively, the more likely you're going to need inotropic support and at higher doses post-bypass. Okay. Now, and what do you usually use when, when you're back at that uh, first P of pharmacy and you're setting up your inotropes, are you going to have uh, multiple things, just one? Is it going to vary or do you always like to have the same things? So, well, actually, I'll talk about this a little bit more. I find that inotropics, inotrope selection varies tremendously from place to place. I'm a fan of epi and I like to use epi as a single agent as my, and as my primary agent, but we'll chat a little bit more about how and why I like epi and some of the other agents that folks will use. Okay, sounds good. So just to review where we're at, the cross clamp is off, lungs are working, heart is beating. We may have made some adjustments pharmacologically, either to adjust our contractility or our systemic vascular resistance, and now it's time to transfer the remaining work of the heart from the machine back to the patient. So at this point, a successful weaning from cardiopulmonary bypass is defined as restoration of adequate oxygenation, ventilation, circulation, and organ perfusion without the aid of ongoing extracorporeal circulation. So how does weaning actually occur sort of mechanistically? Now, the weaning from bypass may be surgeon-led or anesthesiologist-led, and either way, there's always appropriate contributions from the perfusionist. And as we mentioned, the standardized pre-separation checklists are utilized at some institutions, and I think it's a great idea. But at a minimum, this is a time where communication between the teams is critical. A surgeon where I'm working now recently said, there are no secrets in the operating room. And I certainly think this is especially true when it comes time to separate from bypass. I'm very quick to share with the surgeon if I'm on higher doses of vasopressors or inotropes than I may have expected preoperatively, or if there's something from the patient's history or pre-op or intra-op echo that I think might make weaning more challenging. And similarly, I appreciate if a surgeon tells me, hey, I'm concerned about this coronary target or this valve was really challenging, then to find surprises when we try to separate from bypass. Yeah, communication, absolutely crucial. So whoever is leading the separation and typically initiates the wean saying something to the effect of leave some volume in. And what this tells the perfusionist is to gradually decrease the amount of venous blood diverted to the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit, which allows blood to remain in the right atrium. And the way I've always seen the perfusionist do this is they literally take a clamp. I, I'm blanking on the terminology, but it's similar to a Kelly clamp. I'm sure that's not what it is. And literally just apply differing degrees of pressure to their venous line to allow blood to stay in the right atrium. And you can see evidence of this process because you'll start to gain pulsatility on the arterial blood pressure waveform and a gradual increase will be noted in central venous pressure or pulmonary artery pressure if that's something you're monitoring. And the rise in preload causes the heart the patient's heart, to now contribute to the cardiac output. At this point, this condition is turned partial bypass because the venous blood is draining into the right atrium is divided into two paths. Some goes to the pump and some passes through the right ventricle to the lungs and is ejected by the LV into the aorta. And I do know that some institutions actually advocate keeping the patient on partial bypass for several minutes to sort of further, as we mentioned, wash out some of these basal active substances from the lungs before terminating bypass. 
And I can't say that I've seen that all the time, but I will see it occasionally if it's a patient with very poor biventricular function or a very complicated arrest. Sometimes the surgeon will say, you know, let's just hang out here for a couple minutes. And I believe that's typically what they're doing is trying to give a little bit of time on partial bypass. Okay. And now once we've left some volume in, typically what you'll hear next is something to the effect of come down on your flow. Because now you have two sources of blood that are supplying the aorta. The amount of arterial blood returned from the pump to the patient can be reduced as the patient's native cardiac output increases to maintain total aortic blood flow. Therefore, the perfusionist typically lowers the pump flow rate in increments of a half liter to a liter per minute. And then this step is repeated, allowing gradual reductions in pump flow rate while the cardiac function and hemodynamics are monitored. And the perfusionist continues to infuse blood through the aortic cannula, thereby restoring the circulating blood volume as venous drainage is reduced, gradually decreasing their flow rate as mentioned until the left ventricle is adequately filled and ejecting a sufficient stroke volume as evidenced by pulse pressure on the arterial pressure waveform until finally the perfusionist stops diverting blood from the right atrium to the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit clamps the venous drainage line completely and communicates we're off bypass. So we've now made it. We've got to, and of course, during this whole time, as you're decreasing your flow, you're watching the patient and the vital signs and making sure the rhythm is appropriate and everything stays stable. And if you make it to that point and they're off, you're off. And then are you good to go? Do you want to check anything? Are we giving protamine right away? What's next? Right. So exactly. At this time, and as you mentioned, we're continually assessing all the hemodynamic variables of the patient. So the anesthesiologist and the surgeon are really looking at the ventricular filling, uh, essentially the preload by observing both the left and right ventricle on TEE and also by direct visualization in the chest. We look at CVP trends or pulmonary artery pressures, and we sort of determine target values often based upon pre-bypass trends more so than absolute values to really optimize where we want this patient to be. And when adequate circulation is established as indicated by reaching these hemodynamic goals, the surgeon will reinspect their suture lines and other sites for excessive bleeding. Both the surgeon and anesthesiologist by TE will assess the integrity of the repair, whatever the procedure might be, and will continue assessing relevant TE images and hemodynamic data before proceeding with protamine administration and vascular decannulation. So you want to see uh, that everything looks good, obviously in terms of the repair and the function. It's really nice to have that echo probe in there for that purpose. As you said, once everything looks good, what then you're going to go ahead and obviously the surgeon and the anesthesiologist agree things look good. Are you giving the protamine then? Do you need to reach a certain rewarming temperature before giving the protamine or not? So... Just to review a little bit, some of the typical goals we're looking for, and again, this will vary from patient to patient, but before you can kind of say we're safe, I think we can start to remove our cannulas, <coughs> excuse me, would be a heart rate of 80 to 90 beats per minute or whatever we d- determine as a team is the heart rate that we want. A mean arterial pressure, typically about 60 to 90 to maintain perfusion to the myocardium and other organs adequate filling of the ventricles, namely by assessing preload, a cardiac index, or and then something analogous to cardiac index of 2 to 2.4 liters per minute, again, indicating adequate organ perfusion. And once all these goals are achieved, 
or if these goals cannot be achieved and there's unstable physiologic parameters, this may suggest the need to return to bypass. And that's certainly a discussion for another time. Absolutely. And I think a lot of things like the protamine and taking out the cannulas, all that stuff that I know you think of as kind of falling under the post-bypass category, we will get to maybe in another podcast. But where do you want to take it from here? So what I want to do now is review just how it is that we transferred, again, all the determinants of cardiac output and mean arterial pressure from the bypass circuit back to the patient. Because as anesthesia providers, we're responsible for manipulating and optimizing those variables in order to accomplish the transition successfully. So I'll present to you the way I like to think about it, and the way I do so was largely explained to me by actually Dr. Michael Grant, a fantastic member of the Hopkins faculty, so shout out to Dr. Grant. Yes, I've heard of him. Good guy I hear. He's all right. So as we know, the mean arterial pressure is determined by systemic vascular resistance and cardiac output. So let's break that down in regards to weaning from bypass. So probably the most fixable, and by that I mean both correcting and keeping as a constant, determinant of cardiac output is the heart rate. If the patient is hypotensive or subcardiac index, one of the easiest modifications we can make is just by adjusting heart rate with our pacemaker. So as we said, rates of 80 to 90 are common, but I'll sometimes push that to 100, especially in a case where I'm worried about right heart function, such as in an LVAD or in a heart transplant. So we've set our heart rate. The next factor I like to set and then forget as much as possible is the contractility of the heart, which essentially translates to inotropic support. The choice of of inotrope varies tremendously from institution to institution, where I trained both in residency and fellowship, we were preferential to Epi. Where I'm at now actually is a bit more partial to milrinone. I know of institutions that use dobutamine. But as I mentioned, I personally like Epi because it's what I have the most experience with. But I also find it to be predictable and very titratable. So I'll use Epi in my explanation here. So if a patient has normal biventricular function or even maybe a slightly depressed function, say to the order of an EF of 45 to 50%, and it was a reasonable bypass and cross-clamp time, I'll usually either start no inotrope or maybe epi at a dose of 0.02 to 0.03 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Whereas if a patient's EF is on the order of 25 to 40%, or it's a long or complicated procedure, I'll typically start my epi at 0.04 to 0.06, And if the patient's EF is less than 25% or they have evidence of severe right heart failure, I'll usually start my epi at 0.08 to 0.1. And another tip that I picked up from Dr. Grant, and I do agree with, is I think it's easier to start off on the higher side with an inotrope and throttle back if you need to, guided by your echo and hemodynamics, than to try and play catch up on a sluggish heart. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, and it's nice to have those guidelines, you know, rough EF guidelines. I think that's really nice for folks uh, as they do this clinically. All right, so you're, you're getting your epinephrine, or I'm sure people who use other agents have similar kind of guidelines in their head, um, and people can certainly leave comments uh, on, the, uh, on the website and let us know what they do for those other ones, but this is nice to have for epi. All right, so you've got these guidelines. You're going to start it based on what you're seeing on the echo, and then what else are you thinking about? Correct, and once we've separated from bypass, I really try to sort of set the inotrope and leave it as much as I can and manage other 
hemodynamic variables, if able. Now, if we've separated from bypass and my heart functions dramatically different from what I predicted, primarily evidenced by the echo, I will adjust the dose. But as I've said, I'll usually try to leave it where it is as long as it's reasonable to do so. And if I'm hypotensive, suggesting it's from an issue with SVR, add a vasoconstrictor, or even if I'm hypertensive, I might add a antihypertensive agent such as nitroglycerin or clavidipine. So the next part that I try to address is systemic vascular resistance, SVR. Now, we do have ways to measure this either through a pulmonary artery catheter or a flow track, or you can even make these calculations with an echo. But I tend to judge my initial needs for supporting SVR by the way the patient behaves on bypass. That is, kind of as you mentioned, if the perfusionist tells me I'm having to give a lot of phenylephrine or if I personally am on a vasopressin infusion or norepi infusion just to maintain an adequate mean arterial pressure on bypass, it suggests to me the patient's going to need vasoconstrictor support post-bypass as well. And again, I'll modify this as needed if we separate and the patient has a hyperdynamic ventricle or the patient is hypertensive. But again, my strategy is to play with this as little as, as possible. So now we've made our best guess at optimizing all the other determinants of cardiac output. And it really only leaves one variable left. And that's your preload. So to me, it's actually quite simple. If I've sort of optimized my inotropy, I've optimized my systemic vascular resistance. It's the only variable left. So if the perfusionist administers more volume or you administer more volume and your central venous pressure increases, your PA diastolic pressure increases, you observe better filling on the echo, and also your mean arterial pressure increases, it tells you you're on the left side of the Starling curve and you could take on more volume. An important caveat doesn't necessarily mean you need more volume, but it will tell you that an increase in preload will increase your mean arterial pressure and typically your cardiac index. Alternatively, if you take on volume and your central venous pressure goes up, but your mean arterial pressure goes down, if your RV dilates, it means you're on the right side of the Starling curve, especially on the portion of the curve that is equivalent to heart failure, and it suggests you need to slow down on the volume and that you might need more inotropic support. And that's pretty much it. Obviously, there's more nuance to it than that, and it's determined by the patient's pathology. For example, in an aortic case, I tend to separate at a lower blood pressure and keep them lower. Or if it's a case where I'm really worried about the right heart, I tend to come off drier, as we say, and I'll take on volume much more slowly, mm -hmm. increase my index rather with higher doses of inotropes. And then, of course, there's all sorts of adjuncts, like there are times when we need to add inhaled pulmonary vasodilators to decrease pulmonary vascular resistance, Actually, where I'm currently practicing, it's often practiced to run nitroglycerin, quote-unquote, wide open with the thought of increasing venous capacitance to make space for the volume being administered and also the benefits of coronary vasodilatation from nitroglycerin. But those are all sort of extras. I think the way I describe, the way Dr. Grant taught me really kind of helps me have a straightforward paradigm with which to hang my decision tree off of. So I really hope this gives at least a simplified way of thinking about how to separate from bypass. And as I mentioned, I think we'll leave the discussion of the post-bypass period for another time and then maybe even more to talk about failure to wean from bypass. But suffice it to say, if any listeners are desperate to know what happens next, key steps include examination of the repair, 
the venous and arterial cannulas are removed. Co- anticoagulation is reversed with protamine. There's reinfusion of the pump blood, the maintenance of optimum pacemaker f- function, and really just continued and ongoing achievement of hemostasis and resuscitation. And lastly, most importantly, never, ever, ever give protamine without confirming with the surgeon and the perfusionist that they are ready for you to do so. Sounds like good advice. Stephen, this is super fantastic and helpful. I love how you took it through uh, piece by piece. I was sitting here trying to see if I could come up with a, a mnemonic for your soup. The best I could come up with was chat GE. Uh, chat GE would, would cover it, but not, not a great mnemonic. So I'll let our listeners come up with a better one if they can. Either way, I love how you took us through it. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's always a blast. I'm thrilled to talk about cardiac anesthesia or any type of anesthesia and hope we can do it again soon. We will definitely have you back. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Another fantastic podcast with Dr. Stephen Freiberg. Thank you so much for listening. If you have thoughts, you're out there, you're practicing cardiac anesthesia. What do you do? How do you do it differently? What do you agree with? Let us know. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Let us know what you think others can learn from the comments that you leave. You can also, of course, see all of the episodes there as well as comments on all of them. You can join the mailing list. You can get a hold of me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, go to iTunes and leave a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. Even if you've already done it once, you can certainly do it again. If you want to support the making of the show, you can either go to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show and donate a certain amount per episode, whatever you want, even if it's just a dollar or two, it makes a big difference. We really appreciate it. Or if you prefer to do a one-time donation or to control your own uh, pace, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC, that's P-A-Y-P-A-L dot M-E slash A-C-C-R-A-C. RAC, where you can make any donation that you want as a one-time thing or do it multiple times, whatever you want. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much to those who already have donated or have become patrons. And of course, thank you to Brian Park for the work you do on the outlines. You'll see those pop up on some of the episodes. Thank you so much for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Stephen Freiberg, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.